Hi everyone, I'm Tara Mont, and you're listening to the Trust and Thrive with Tara Mont podcast. I created this podcast along with my blog and brand to hopefully inspire others to live their most authentic life. I truly believe that we all have the power to live a life we love, and to do so, it's so important to be in tune with ourselves and be open to growing and evolving. I believe that once we can trust ourselves and our vision, that's when we can thrive. So with this podcast, I plan to discuss all things to do with self-reflection, personal growth, mindsets, and self-belief, all aspects that affect us in our everyday life. If you feel connected to my message and want to listen more often, I will be sharing one podcast a week, so make sure to subscribe and stay tuned. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Julia Rose, who is the creator of the blog and Instagram page, How Am I Feeling? We talked a lot about mental health, the healing process, finding that community who really gets you. And I think a lot of people can relate to that episode because we're all healing in some way, whether that is healing from a trauma or just some beliefs that we have or just experiences that really affected us. And that's episode 47, being patient with yourself through the healing process. And you can find that on iTunes and Spotify, basically wherever you're listening to this episode. So for this week's episode, we're touching on a different topic and we're talking about ultra learning. So ultra learning is overall all about how to learn new things faster. So with that said, the guest on this week's episode is Scott Young, who is the author of the book, Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career. So Scott Young became pretty well known when he learned MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in less than 12 months. After that, he taught himself four new languages in a year. In this episode, Scott explains what ultra learning means. He gives many tools and advice on how other people can do that or why many of us feel like it's so out of reach when it's not, when it's so possible, we all can take something new we want to learn and ideally focus on one thing at a time and just go all in. So overall, Scott is a writer who undertakes interesting self-education projects, such as attempting to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in 12 months and learning four languages in one year. He lives in Vancouver, Canada, and like I said, he released his new book, Ultra Learning. In his book, Scott compiled actionable strategies for learning anything faster and gives many tips on how you can in your own life. That could be a new language, a degree program, just learning to play a new instrument. And he explains that it can be so hard and frustrating, but it requires that we stretch out of our limits and where we feel comfortable in order to learn more. He even says the things you can accomplish make it worth the effort. So this is a really insightful episode. Scott has so much knowledge to share. And I think we've all experienced that where we want to like try a new project. We want to learn a new language. We want to learn a new skill, but we feel like it's too hard or we don't know where to start or we feel like we're not good enough. You know, we're not talented. When in reality, it's possible for all of us. And of course, there's some natural talent that comes in this, but He explains that it seems so extreme and outside of many of our capabilities, but it's not. It's about the principles and methods that one uses, touches on the tools that can really help. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to learn more about Scott Young, I will make sure to include more information in the description of this episode, along with a link to his book, so you can check out his book, Ultra Learning, if you are interested. And if you want to hear some of my takeaways from this interview... Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode. So with that said, let's get right into learning more about ultra learning with Scott Young.
Hi, Scott. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you being on the show. Oh, it's great to be here. So I'm really interested in the topic of self-education, and I know you go into so much more detail in your book, but before anything, can you tell us a little more about yourself and what it is that you do, and if you would like to touch on your book? Right, right. So I'm a writer, and uh, for basically the last 10 years, the kind of things that I've been doing is I've been doing kind of like unusual self-directed learning projects. And what I wanted to do in, in talking about this book was to talk about all the ways that people can get good at things and get unstuck in their lives and, and you know, really work on skills that matter both in their professional life and in their personal life, uh, but in ways that often you maybe haven't thought of before. So not just a traditional, okay, go to school, get an MBA, do this kind of thing, but really ways that you can get skills regardless of your situation. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you what ultra learning means to you. Where did you get that title from? Right. So uh, the term actually wasn't coined by me. It was coined by a friend of mine, Cal Newport, um, to describe a project that I was doing. But I like the idea because, you know, just like any other new word that you kind of create or that you feel you need to use is that you see something out in the world that exists and there doesn't seem to be a good word to describe it. So you have to kind of make your own up. And so for me, what I wanted to focus on was sort of the overlap of two different qualities. So one of the qualities was people who do kind of unusual self-directed learning projects. And by that, I mean kind of in contrast to how we typically think about learning, which is you go to a classroom, you sit through four years of university, you go through a normal sort of structured education process where there's a teacher there telling you what to do every moment, and you don't really make a lot of decisions. You just sort of go along with it. In contrast, this kind of self-directed learning really interested me, not only because you know tuition's crazy expensive, it's often inaccessible and unaffordable, but also because there's so many skills that schools don't teach or they don't teach very well, like languages or public speaking or leadership. And so I wanted to talk about people who nonetheless have gotten very good at these skills by taking on their own self-design projects. And then the other thing I wanted to focus on is people who really have an intensity and a passion for learning things well. So not just how can I kill some time on an app and maybe I'll learn something, but how do I optimize the process of learning things so that I can achieve you know, impressive results, really get good at this skill in the least amount of time possible, or really go far deeper with a skill than most people would expect me to. And so I wanted to focus on this confluence of things. And so I call these people ultra learners. And I have some interesting stories in my book, people like Eric Barone, who spent five years painstakingly developing all the skills of video game design and released a best-selling game selling tens of millions of copies, or, or people like Tristan Montebello, who with very limited public speaking experience, nonetheless, through an intensive ultra-learning project, managed to be in the finals for the World Championship of Public Speaking after just seven months. So my book has lots of stories like this, and they're kind of extreme, but I also want to use them just as examples of you know, what might be possible if you really took learning seriously. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious as to what your educational experiences were like growing up. Did you enjoy going to school and having a teacher and being with other kids in the class? Like, what was that like for you? I think like a lot of people I had kind of mixed experiences going through school. So on the one hand, I feel like I was always a, a sort of diligent student and I cared about, you know, getting good grades and working hard. So I wasn't one of these, you know, I wasn't the person who was always slacking off and doing this thing. I did actually care about learning. But I also felt like a lot of the classes I were in were either boring or pointless or, you know, taught things that I didn't think were relevant 
or you know sometimes I was very frustrated why how they were teaching classes so I definitely had kind of both feelings of really good experiences from school and and I definitely was interested in learning and, and curious about the world but also like so many of us a kind of feeling of ah oh, you know like why couldn't they do it like this or why couldn't they do it like that and and so I think for me this kind of interest in ultra learning is really the combination of those two things the combination of just not only being interested in being good at things and interested in knowing things and figuring out how the world works, but also, you know, some frustration with how we typically go about it. Yeah, definitely. I think the school system really makes a lot of students feel like they're maybe not intelligent just because of the way that it's set up. So for you, when did you first learn about self-education? When's the first time that you realized, oh, I can actually teach myself and learn past just schooling? You know, there are no limits for me. Can you take us through that? Yeah, yeah, I can, of course. So there's actually a funny story behind that. So my first real introduction to this kind of what I'm calling this sort of world of ultra learners, these sort of unusual people who are doing these kind of unusual projects, was when I was in university, I had the opportunity to go on an exchange to France. And I was really keen to learn French. I thought it would be really cool to go to another country, live there for a little while and come back and, you know, parler en français and, and that kind of thing. And uh, so they had this little like meet and greet thing before we went on exchange where the people who were about to go on exchange could meet the people who went on exchange the year before. And because I was really eager to learn French, I went up and I talked to a bunch of these people. I said, well, you know, did you learn the language when you went on exchange? And the crazy thing was, is everyone who went there who didn't already know the language, like they hadn't already studied it for like three or four years in university, said that they didn't learn it. So they, they went somewhere for, you know, a semester, for a year, and then they I said, well, did you learn, you know, if they went to Mexico, did you learn Spanish? Or if you went to, you know, Berlin, did you learn German? And they would often say, no, they didn't learn it. And this was really surprising to me. And it was only when I got to the country, when I got to France and arrived there, that I started to figure out why this was. And it was because, well, they were exchanging your grades back from the ones, the school that you were going to, so from your host school to your home school. And so naturally, if you have to do university level classes and your grades actually count, um, you pick the only language that you actually speak when you're enrolling in classes. So I enrolled in English classes. So all my classes are in English. And then you meet a bunch of other exchange students and French people who speak English. And so all of your friends speak to you in English all the time. So even though I was studying French a lot at home in my off hours and, and trying to practice with people when I would you know go to a shop or you know meet someone new who was French, I would try to speak to them in French. It was very difficult and I was struggling a lot with it. And so I was kind of com- complaining about this to a, a friend back home. And he said to me, uh, well, have you heard of Benny Lewis? And I said, no, I, I, who's Benny Lewis? And so Benny Lewis had a website. Well, he still has a website, same website, um, but it was just new at the time. And the website very modestly called Fluent in Three Months. And I remember, you know, I'd been in France for more than three months this time. I remember thinking when I first heard that, I was like, that's bullshit. There's no way you can learn a language that quickly. But I kind of felt like I got to meet this guy. I got to see what he's doing to even think that he can attempt something like this you know, while I'm really struggling with it. And I met him and I I got to meet him. He wasn't very famous back then. And I got to meet him in person. And what I realized was that his whole philosophy and approach to learning languages was very different from mine. Whereas I'm kind of, you know, well, maybe I'll be able to practice a little bit of French here and study some more at home and then go out and practice a little bit. 
he was diving right into practicing with people almost from the very first day. So he'd have a phrase book and he would just go up and start talking to people. And what I learned as well was just that he had really worked hard to maximize and optimize every aspect of the language learning process. So whereas I was, you know, kind of like, well, this is sort of how it is. Most people didn't learn the language. Maybe, you know, you just can't learn a language. He was very deliberate about really acquiring this proficiency. And since then, I've met a bunch of people who are like him, who similarly acquire languages quickly and speak, you know, 10 plus languages. And I've learned from their experiences that this kind of learning, at least in the domain of languages, is possible. And and some other little examples throughout my way have taught me that, you know, this is broader than just language learning. This also applies to learning things that you would learn in school or or skills that you would need for your workplace. I already mentioned some of them already in the in the introduction here. But I think that this first little inclination of this is someone who's outside the normal school system. He's not taking five years of, you know, Spanish classes to learn Spanish. He is actually just going there and doing this. Um, was my first little in- indication that something like this might be possible. I'm curious as to why you think so many people limit themselves, I, or I think people like tell themselves, I can't learn this, or he must be a genius that he was able to. Have you noticed with the people you've met, do you think it has to do with talent, or is it more of just a commitment and really focusing on it? What would you say are some key factors that play a role in ultra learning? So, well, one of the things I would say is that a lot of people who say, oh, I just can't learn a language are not really saying they can't learn a language. They're mostly just saying I don't have a strong interest in learning a language, which is okay. It's okay to say I don't really want to learn another language. So I think that's important to distinguish because sometimes people just say, oh, I don't have the talent or the ability for this, but they haven't really ever seriously put in time or effort to try to learn a language. However, there are many people, maybe maybe even the person listening to this right now, who they spent, you know, a couple years in school, maybe they really tried one time, maybe they, you know, they downloaded Duolingo and they worked on it for 6 months and and no results. And so I think what happens to many of us is that we're not aware of all the possibilities that go into learning. So we we tend to just go with whatever is right in front of us. So, well, I heard other people use this, so I'm going to go with this. And sometimes those approaches aren't very effective. And so one of the things I find very funny, you know, getting to know a lot of these polyglots or people who speak multiple languages is that uh, Duolingo is the most popular app, clearly, for learning languages out there right now. But if you talk to people who actually basically learn languages is what the th- what they do with their whole lives. None of them like Duolingo, which I find is just this huge discrepancy. So there's clearly a disconnect with what people who are really good at this like to do and what they actually use versus what the everyday person thinks, oh, maybe I'll use this app or use this um, class or this approach to learning things. So sometimes it's just a difference in knowledge of not being aware of what what's out there of what you can do. And certainly that was related to my case because before I'd been introduced to Benny Lewis, the idea that someone would want to learn a language or could even try to learn a language in just a few months was insanity to me. Even thinking that I could do it in a year felt like it would be a real, real difficult challenge. And so the fact that someone's doing it that fast just seemed insane to me at the time. And so I think sometimes there's an issue of knowledge and sometimes what it is, and and trying to remedy this in my book, is that people aren't aware of a lot of the principles that go into learning. So they don't know what are the ingredients that you need to have in order to be successful at acquiring a new skill. And so sometimes they just happen to have those ingredients and they learn the skill fairly well. And then they say to themselves, oh, I've got a natural talent for X, Y, or Z. And sometimes they're missing one of those ingredients 
They stumble a lot. And because they stumble a lot, they interpret that as, well, I must not be very good at this or I lack natural talent. And I mean, there are differences in people's natural talents, but there's also huge ranges in the ways people approach things and the efficacy of those approaches. That's so funny that you bring that up because I've tried using Duolingo. I grew up um, learning three <laughs> languages, but I've always wanted to learn more. And it's it's so true. Mm-hmm. You get discouraged when you don't see progress right away. And then other people say, oh, I wish I learned this when I was younger or they think it's too late or right. yeah, it's too right. late to start. I know in your book, you talk about the nine underlying principles of ultra learning. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want, you don't have to go into detail of all of them. But I wanted to ask you what you think are the most important ones and sure. where did you develop these nine? Where did you learn those? Yeah, so the nine principles, well, that was, a again, a whole process of researching in my book of a sort of a mixture of kind of what do I think is important from my own experience and, and from seeing the stories of other people and then, you know, going to scientific research and seeing, okay, which ones have the most support. So there was, that was a couple year process to figure out all the principles. But I think Um, The two that I tend to focus on that I think, you know, all the principles I think are super important, but the two that I would, you know, if I have limited time to talk about them, that I would focus on would be directness and retrieval. And so directness is based on this idea that we have known for pretty much over 100 years that people are very bad at something called transfer. So what transfer is, is when you learn something in one context, let's say in a classroom, and then you have to apply it in a different context, let's say in real life, it turns out people are very bad at this. And so there's whole textbooks that have been written showing just thousands of studies where people fail at this when you would expect them to be able to transfer it. So some of my favorite studies are one study had uh, economics majors did not perform better on questions of economic reasoning than non-economics majors. So once you controlled for intelligence and grades, it didn't matter what you studied on economics questions, which is kind of crazy because what's the point of studying economics if you don't do better on questions of economic reasoning? Uh, Another study showed that high school students who have taken high school psychology didn't do better at college level psychology than those who didn't take high school level psychology, which again, you would imagine taking high school level psychology should transfer the college level class. Um, Similarly, uh, one study found that Uh, honors physics students, so not even just regular physics students, the best physics students often couldn't do problems that differ superficially from the ones they learned in class. And so this is a very frightening prospect because what we want from education, what we want from learning is transfer. We want to be able to learn something and apply it to a lot of different situations. And so the fact that this hasn't happened or hasn't happened to the extent that we expect is is kind of scary. It's kind of damning of the education system. And so one of the principles that I kind of talk about in this book is that of directness, which is that if we accept that at least in the beginning, when you start learning something new, that transfer is quite difficult, then this creates an opportunity for you to have an advantage over other people learning if you make your learning more direct. So if you focus on trying to apply what you're learning to a situation that you eventually want to get good at very early on, you're going to suffer from transfer problems a lot less. So this is one of the reasons that I criticize Duolingo is that what does Duolingo do? Well, you have some app and like one of the exercises, let's say, will be a sentence and then it'll have a word bank with a bunch of words in the language you're trying to use and then you tap them out in order to try to complete the sentence as a translation. 
Now, the problem is that this is very dissimilar to actually having a conversation in a language. Actually having a conversation has many, many things that make that harder than the Duolingo case, and they involve different skills that you're not gonna practice playing with your phone. So for instance, you have to actually recall the words from memory. You don't have to just recognize them. When you are recalling a word from memory, it's more difficult than having to pick it out of a word bank. Second, you have to actually be able to produce the words with your mouth, which is not a trivial task when you're speaking an unfamiliar language. Pronunciation is hard. You have to be able to deal with the fact that you have to speak in a quick enough way so that you're not speaking haltingly one word every five seconds, which is also difficult. So there's many little difficulties like this, which mean that you can spend months and months practicing Duolingo, but you've never practiced those skills. So when it comes to actually speaking with someone, you might struggle. And so the issues of transfer and directness, I think are, are very important. And they're also one that we often don't appreciate fully just because the default approach for how we learn things in school is often so bad for directness that we come to think that's how you ought to learn things even though it's more of a deficit of schooling rather than the strength of schooling. And so that's one of the principles. The other principle that I think is super important, super useful for people is retrieval. And so retrieval is the idea that if you want to get good at something, you need to practice recalling it from memory rather than reviewing it. And there was a neat little study that was done by Jeffrey Karpicki and Janelle Blunt, I think from the University of Purdue, uh, that illustrated this. And the way that they did the studies, they divided students up into different groups. And one of the groups, they got to do repeated review, which means that you just basically have a text that you're reading and you read it over and over and over again, which is not too dissimilar from how a lot of students actually study for their tests. And then in another group, they got them to do free recall, which means that you read it once, then you close the book and you try to recall everything that you can remember from the text without looking at it. And what they found was that when they asked the students right after they did it, how well do you think you learned the material, those who did repeated review gave themselves the highest marks. They were convinced that they knew the information, whereas those who did free recall gave themselves the worst marks. They thought, oh, you know, this is actually really difficult. I probably don't know it. However, when they do the tests, these things reverse. So when you actually test them, those who do free recall perform much better than those who did repeated review. And so this is a sort of, you know, it, it's about studying and it's about learning in classrooms, but it's really much, much more general than that. So an example of where this comes into play is, you know, if, if you've ever had to give a presentation at work, how do people practice their presentations? Well, they get their cue cards and they stand up and they look at their cue cards and they kind of mutter their speech to themselves several times as a way of preparing. This is not the way to prepare for a speech. If you want to prepare for a speech, you have to put the cue cards away try to do the speech, and then if you can't think of it, then look at the cue card. Do something closer to free recall. So retrieval is another ingredient that is often missing in the ways that we approach learning things, and then it's no wonder that we remember very little of the things that we tried to learn. Mm -hmm. That completely makes sense. I just remember thinking back to school days when people would study, and they think that like if they kept looking back at their notes, like even in an hour before, that that would really help them instead of like taking them away and practicing without it. So when it comes to directness, for example, would you say when it comes to learning a new language that going to the country or going somewhere where they speak that language would help so much more than just like you said on an app or, you know, even talking to someone else, but like being applying it to real life, you're saying that's what really helps? Well, immersion, I think going, so if you have the opportunity right now to go on, you know, some year long trip to France and you're going to live in Paris and learn French that way, I think that can help. 
I want to be clear though. I think that, you know, even my own experience learning French can demonstrate that going to the other country is not the solution to the problem. Uh, it can help. It, it helps particularly with motivation. I mean, if you're constantly needing to use French, then you have a strong motivation to learn it. However, I have met tons of people in my travels who have lived for decades in other countries that they don't even speak the basics of the language. And it's because they have this same problem that they're not actually using it. They're not actually practicing it. They're finding ways to avoid using it. And so I think that there is sometimes a case where traveling to a country can either be the, oh, well, I don't have to worry about effective learning because I'm going to the country, or it can be the excuse for, well, I can't travel to that country, so there's no point even trying to learn this language. And instead, what I would recommend is instead of thinking about, you know, something big, like going to another country or living somewhere else for a year, think about what you're doing each moment when you're trying to learn. Because if you can align those moments with the principles of effective learning, then you will be much more effective in the long run, regardless of what's happening in the bigger environment. And so one of those things that I like to say is that if you want to be good at having conversations with people, which is probably the main goal for 99% of people learning a language, then you need to have simple conversations with people very early on. Even if that means pulling up Google Translate and typing in the words you want to say and then you say it to the person and then they say something and you don't understand them and so you get them to type it into Google Translate, you translate it back. Even those kind of halting, kind of fake conversations that might be the only thing you can do right near the beginning are still useful because they involve some of the same principles of having to actually make the words with your mouth, having to pronounce them, having to get that feedback from the conversation. And so... You know, there are little things you can do right, right off the bat if, you, if that's too difficult for you. Like uh, I, I generally recommend Pimsleur as opposed to Duolingo as a starting tool for learning a language. But at the same time, there's, it's inescapable. If you want to have conversations with people, you have to practice conversations. And this is a little difficult and frustrating. But once you accept it, that that's the path that you have to do to get to fluency, you can get much better, much more quickly than the person who, you know, is just reviewing their flashcards or they're using some app. Exactly. And I think once we realize that it won't be an easy process, the frustration will be normal, then I think it's easier to get through it. Because I think a lot of people, like you said, get discouraged when they think, okay, well, I can't communicate well to this person or it's too late. I'll never learn. So I'm glad you brought that up. So now I'm really curious as to the MIT program that you actually completed in just a few months. Can you go into a little more detail about that? Yeah, sure. So this was a project that I called the MIT Challenge. And so what I was trying to do was I wanted to learn MIT's undergraduate computer science curriculum. So take the classes that they took. And in particular, what I was focused on was could I learn enough of the material that they teach in order to be able to pass the final exams that they have and complete the programming assignments that, that would be in a computer science program. And so uh, the normal way of doing that would be to, you know, apply to MIT, most likely get rejected, but apply to MIT, hopefully get in and then spend four years studying at MIT. And instead, what I decided to do was um, MIT actually posts a lot of their materials online for free. So if you go on right now, MIT OpenCourseWare, there are hundreds of classes that have varying levels of material that are from actual MIT classes. And so when I was designing this project, I was kind of thinking, well, would it be possible to use the free resources they provide online to do something that is a, you know, benchmarked off of an MIT degree? And so this MIT challenge was to try to go through these uh, 33 classes. I ended up doing one class before, but 32 classes. 
and try to pass these exams and do the programming projects. Uh, but instead of doing it in the four-year time frame, I wanted to try to do it in 12 months. So this was a project that I started in October of 2011, and I passed the exam for the final class in September of 2012. Wow. And when it comes to these topics that or these areas that you choose, are you really interested in them? Or is it something that you want to challenge yourself? Are you more interested in challenging yourself? Or are you actually like are really fascinated with computer science? Both. Well, I was really fascinated in computer science. And so my motivation was that I was actually even considering going back to school and getting an actual degree. I'd actually even been looking up online, you know, what would be involved in doing that. And uh, I had studied business in my undergrad because I thought, well, if I want to be an entrepreneur, I should go into business school. It turns out, just fun fact, turns out that going to business school is not really great for being an entrepreneur. It's mostly for how do you be a good manager in a large corporation, but that's a bit of an aside. But I, I finished that and I was thinking I'd really like to, you know, I, I knew how to program a little bit. So I'd done a little bit of programming before. But I wanted to really know how to program. Like I wanted to know how to program the way someone who, you know, got a computer science degree could program. And so I I was kind of feeling a little down that, well, you know, I I had studied the wrong thing in school. And so there was a strong motivation for me to learn this. And the fact that it was sort of an interesting kind of challenge or project, I think, doubled my enthusiasm for it because this was also something kind of interesting that I could do. I didn't know anyone else who had done this before. So, I mean, there's... How often in life do you get to be the first person to do something? So I was really excited to try doing this as, as well. And so I've always had a motivation to learn the things that I've been interested in. But I think as I've gone through more and more of these projects, I think what I've become really interested in is the learning process itself. So sometimes when I encounter something that I think is going to be really challenging, that automatically you know gets the gears spinning a little bit of, oh, how might you be able to do this? What would be the approach to learn this? And so I find myself, I gravitate towards projects where it's not obvious to me how you would get good at it, but then you try something out and, and you realize, oh, maybe this might work better than the conventional approaches. Yeah. And I imagine after like one project, it motivates you to want to try multiple. So with this project and with all of your projects in general, did you have any mentors? And when it comes to feedback, did you chat with people who are maybe in these programs already? And completing this or is this something you kind of did on your own? Well, I do. I have had mentors. So even just talking about Benny Lewis sort of going way back, I mean, I have been fortunate enough to meet people who have done incredible things and have worked really hard and they have served as inspiration. I do a lot of my projects kind of under my own constraints. And I, like, I mean, when I was doing the MIT challenge, I did have friends who are programmers and people who were even doing their PhD in computer science who, I mean, they weren't helping me with my homework, but they were providing guidance and feedback when I would be discussing the project at a higher level about like, what did they think about it? And what, what, you know, what, what suggestions would they have? So I definitely didn't do these things in a vacuum, but at the same time, I think it's also useful to point out that, you know, these projects didn't come about just because I had, you know, some great team behind me and perfect coaches and mentors, because I think sometimes finding perfect coaches and mentors can itself be a, a tool to procrastinate on working on something like, oh, I don't have a really good teacher or coach, so I can't get better at this. Whereas I think it's often the opposite way that once you really show commitment to something, when you really try to get good at something and you work on it on your own, that's when you attract mentors and you attract coaches and you attract people who want to help you. So the perfect example of that, I think I mentioned Tristan Montembello who did the public speaking project and he 
um, very early on decided he's going to do this project to learn public speaking. He was approaching it with this real intensity and passion. And early on, when he was doing the first speeches, he meets this guy, Michael Gendler, who has been a public speaker for years and working in the Toastmasters program, and he knew the ins and outs. And he sees, you know, Tristan really being motivated and decides that he's going to help him and coach him on this project. And so I think in in many ways, if you want to get that help and support in your life, you have to kind of go halfway first. You have to go to the point where you're really enthusiastic and committed. And once other people see that commitment, they're more willing to throw their support behind you. Mm -hmm. And did you reach out to these people? How did that work? Um, well, some of them I already knew. So I've, I've just kind of always been collecting people that I know who know things about various things. And so, uh, you know, mm-hmm. one of the guys that I met, um, we had met because we were both blogging about learning related topics and he worked as a programmer and same with the guy who had his, his PhD. Other times you meet people just by talking about your project. So I remember I met someone who, um, there were a few classes that I did for the MIT challenge where there weren't public exams so they didn't have public exams with solutions for those few classes and so I managed to get around this by having a friend who is like my MIT insider and he there's there's some parts of the open like platform they have at MIT that are only accessible by actual MIT students so you have to have your MIT login and so he was able to like look around for me and find some some classes that actually had exams that you know he was able to download it and send it to me. So some of these people I met just because I was they knew I was doing the project and so they kind of got in touch with me and this kind of thing. And so you complete this MIT program and you learn all these amazing languages. Now, how do you retain all that information? I'm sure there's so much that goes into it and you've learned so much, but throughout the years, how do you retain all of this? So this is a really important point because, uh, you know, I I had a conversation. I'll just have a little story for us. I had a conversation with Benny Lewis. This was early on uh, when he had, when he was still only learning, like, let's say seven or eight languages and he hadn't learned, like, I don't know what number he's at now, but over 10. And I remember him telling me about a language he had just learned. I forget which one it was. Maybe it was Polish. I'm not sure. And I said, uh, oh, well, now you can like speak Polish now. And he said, oh, I don't think I'm going to maintain it. And it just seems so funny to me that like, why would you go about learning something and not maintain it? And it was only after now having learned, you know, six or seven languages that I realized how much effort is involved in maintaining speaking a language. So maintaining it to the point where you could spontaneously start a conversation pretty easily does require quite a bit of work. And if you are learning, you know, dozens of languages, that work starts to dwarf actually the work of learning a new language. And so learning and retaining are often uh, different problems. And I think one of the things that I would stress is that a lot of people don't don't take the retention of skills seriously enough. So they focus really hard on how do I acquire it in the first place, but not so much on how do I retain it. And I think this is also somewhat of a subtle influence of are using our thinking of school in real life that in school you study and you pass the final exam and then no one's ever going to test you on that stuff again. And so we kind of learn from that process, oh, well, the most important thing is to have learned it once and then you don't really need to maintain it. And so in the book, I talk about three different approaches that you can take You can take, and they depend on what your goals are. So one of the approaches you can take is try to maintain the level you already have. And the right way to do this is to try to insert regular practice at certain intervals that is not going to be a huge amount of work but is going to keep the skills fresh so for me when i was doing language learning after i did uh, my language learning trip where i I learned a couple languages in one year 
I went to the trouble of every week, I'm going to have at least half an hour short conversation in each of these languages. And that's not a trivial amount of work, but doing that for the first year, and then I think for the second year, I did once a month for each of the languages, stretched it out long enough that I was able to maintain them throughout that time period. Now, as writing this book and getting super busy, I haven't practiced some of them. Like I haven't practiced Portuguese probably in about six months. So if I were spontaneously to have a Portuguese conversation right now, it would be a little bit rusty, but I could pick it up again pretty quickly. It wouldn't take me probably just a couple sessions before I would be back up to speed. And so I think this maintaining your sort of skills over a long period of time is important, especially for a skill that you might only use infrequently or in bursts. Um, the other approach you can take is just to be okay with letting your skills deteriorate. So for some subjects, I'm okay with not being able to perform them at the peak that I was in the past, but safe in the knowledge that if I needed to relearn them, I could do that. So something like that happened to me uh, recently. So I did a project where I wanted to learn uh, quantum mechanics, and this requires a lot of calculus, which I had not really practiced that much in the sort of intervening eight years. And so I just had to go back and kind of refresh myself with, you know, okay, how do we do integrating by parts again and, and things like that. And so this is often a, a viable strategy for something when you're, you know, you're going to use a skill ahead of time. So, you know, okay, before I learn this, I'm going to have to do a refresher. And, and that's sometimes an okay approach. And then the other approach you can take is to take it to the next level. So once you finish learning one thing, you can really master it and go one step ahead of time. And there's actually some research that this can actually improve your ability to maintain things long term. So one of my favorite studies found that um, students who had taken an algebra class showed the same rate of decay of their knowledge over the long haul. So over 10, 20 years, they showed the same slope of the curve. So if you were a better student, you remembered more, but the rate of forgetting, the amount that you forgot stayed the same. Except there was one group that actually showed that they held on to the knowledge, and those were the students who went on to learn calculus. And so the reasoning here is that when you go to learn calculus, you have to practice that basic algebra so much that it becomes overlearned and it's very hard to forget. So that's another option that you can do. You can just sort of go the next level ahead of time to sort of really master some of the core skills in the level uh, that you're currently working on. And you can even see that in languages, that if you really get proficient, there's some core aspects of the language that you will probably always be proficient with, even if you maybe, you know, forget the word for butterfly or something like that. Mm -hmm. And one thing I completely agree with is the fact that when you're in school, I was going to mention that too, that when you're in school, you're, you're taught to, you know, just pass the test. That's all that matters, mm -hmm. especially if it's a topic you're not that interested in. So say, for example, I've always loved math. So I really studied it and I enjoyed learning it and I still use it today once in a while. But something like biology, which, you know, I thought was interesting, but I was never that great at. I just needed to pass the test and then I move on. So I think that's something we take on today, even if it is with work. You know, you just have to make that presentation and then you move on. So when it comes to learning, say this is a language or whatever topic someone wants to learn, would you recommend focusing on one area? So maybe one language or trying three at a time? Do you think, have you noticed that it's better to maybe focus on one thing? Yeah, so this is a really interesting debate because there's kind of two effects that point in opposite directions. So there is some nuance to this question. So one of the effects that would seem to favor learning multiple things at a time is uh, spacing. And there's also even a sub sort of genre of literature on something called interleaving. And so the spacing idea is simply that we know from tons of research that if you have, let's say, 
10 hours to study something and you spend one hour per day over 10 days, you will remember that information far longer than if you learned it 10 hours in one day. And so the idea seems to be here that more spaced exposures to information in time greatly improves memory. And so because of this, spacing things out, spreading things out, it does seem to suggest that, you know, if you were to learn classes, for instance, it might be better to do four or five classes in parallel than to do, you know, one class and then another class and then another class, then another class. Or alternatively, if you are studying for multiple final exams, it might be make sense to study a little bit of each class uh, per day before the exam than to do, okay, today I'm only doing this exam, to next day I'm only doing another exam. So this effect seems to point in the idea direction of learning more things simultaneously. However, in my own life, I found that it often points in the other direction. And I think the reason it points in the other direction is very often that there's overhead. So there's a certain amount of like mental bandwidth you need to maintain a goal. So if you have a goal that I'm going to learn Spanish, it requires a certain amount of constant overhead in your mind to maintain effort and continue to work on that. Uh, at least to get to certain a certain juncture to a point where you know maybe once you're at the point where reading and speaking in Spanish is effortless and you have a bunch of friends that talk to you in Spanish all the time okay maybe now you don't need to uh, focus on it as much but definitely to get to that point where you can start to have you know simple conversations it seems to be the case that it's very easy to get started with that and then completely abandon it because it's too frustrating or because you have too much going on or you get too busy and so my general recommendation is that when things are difficult and frustrating and the likely result of that difficulty and frustration is that you are going to abandon the goal which i think we can all reflect on our own past experiences of things that we started we you know we picked up a guitar or painting and never made any progress with it for things like that i highly recommend focus so i highly recommend saying okay have a one month project have a three month project where you have certain time that you devote to it every week and you don't try to learn anything else intensely in that time period. And I think if you can commit to that, you'll make more progress than if you do the sort of spread out, try eight things at the same time approach, simply because doing eight things at once, you tend to accomplish nothing. Whereas if you do one thing and really focus on it, it can be helpful. I also think for the particular case of language learning, I don't recommend trying to learn two new languages at the same time just because uh, there tends to be a lot more interference and so I find it's usually better to reach a milestone with one language and then switch. If you're trying to learn let's say Spanish and French at the same time and you're learning them very close together and they're at a similar level of ability and you're both actively learning them they tend to get confused a little bit more often and so uh, I find in the beginning phases at least that's so frustrating that it, it often makes the the difficulty of getting progress not worth it. I think once you get to an inter intermediate level and practice isn't too hard then it makes sense to kind of alternate more often just because then you can actually work on trying to maintain the ability to speak both of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. I completely agree and I think it also it really depends on the person I assume and so if someone were to come to you right now and say like Scott I really want to learn this new language or I want to learn more about graphic design or American history but I just don't have the time I don't know when I'd fit it in or I don't have like four hours in a day to do it what what would you tell them if they had even just like 30 minutes to an hour what advice would you give to someone who wants to learn something new but they feel like they don't know where to start or if they even have time to do so Right. So I think one of the disadvantages of kind of talking about some of these more extreme examples is it can kind of paint a picture that 
Well, like like I was saying about the immersion, like, oh, I don't have the ability to go live in this country for three months, so therefore there's no point in trying to learn this language. Similarly, people can have an attitude of, well, I don't have, you know, 60 hours a week to work on this, so this has nothing to do with me. But what I really try to focus on in the book and what I think really matters and what, you know, really most of the principles boil down to is what are you doing with each moment that you're trying to learn? So. If you only have 10 minutes a day, then you only have 10 minutes a day, but you better make that 10 minutes a day count. You better make sure that it's moving you in the direction you want because it's very easy to spend 10 minutes a day doing something that makes no progress and you only realize that it's making you no progress after about six months, let's say. And so I think that it's rarely the case that no one has time to learn anything. Rather, I think what it is is that we're busy, we're tired, sometimes we're stressed, and learning, especially if you don't have a lot of success with it, can be frustrating, it can be painful, it can be difficult. And so because of that, we'd often prefer to, you know, play on our phones or watch Netflix or do something that has that immediate reward, even if it isn't creating long-term skill. And so what I usually recommend is start a concrete project uh, and really focus on, even if you only have that 10 minutes, what are you doing with those 10 minutes? And so I think that there are some skills that maybe would benefit from a little bit more time. And so there's some skills like, for instance, doing programming is a little hard to do on 10 minutes a day because it might take you, you know, eight minutes to just figure out what the heck's going on and where you were left off last time. And so that might be the kind of project that you want to work on, you know, every other weekend you spend four hours or something like that. But at the same time, I don't think the time constraints are usually the problem. I think the problem is a, is an emotional one. The problem is that we're afraid of learning. We're afraid of being frustrated. And, you know, just admitting that doesn't overcome the problem. But once you come face to face with it, it's a lot easier to structure your project in a way that you can make progress even though there is sometimes some resistance. I completely agree. And I think, like you said, often a picture is painted and people will easily say, I don't have time to take a three-hour graphic design class or a marketing class. And so they get discouraged. And I think a lot of people too, they don't want to deal with the fact that they may not be good at it right away or it may take a long time. So I definitely agree that it is a way deeper issue than that. And so with your book, I know we touched on certain areas but can you give an overall idea of what you would like your readers to take away and what you would like them to learn once they finish reading it? So I think there's a lot of points. And as, as we talked about briefly, I go spend a lot of time to talk about these nine different principles of learning of which I just talked about these two. And so I think there's a lot of very specific actionable advice. But I think if I were to just distill it down to a really broad message and, and how I would want people to feel about it, um, the way I want people to feel is that I think we have a lot of certainty that's kind of unearned about how much we can learn. And so a lot of us have these beliefs we have that we say, well, I can't learn a language or, well, I can't learn programming or math or art or, you know, anything you mentioned. There's a lot of people that have these ideas in their head about what they're capable of learning and accomplishing. And the whole hope that I had with this book is to show enough examples, enough ideas, enough strategies that people might do that they might start to doubt themselves and not doubt themselves in this negative way of you know, now you're filled with doubt and uncertainty, but just really the sense that comes from doubt where you start to get curious of what you might actually be able to do, what skills you might be able to learn, what things might you be able to know 
if you actually approached it the right way. And so I don't know where you're going to end up with this and I don't know. It really depends on you. It depends on what interests you have and how far you want to take it. But I think if you approach it with that attitude of uncertainty and curiosity, not just for the subject that you want to learn, but also for what you might be able to learn in general, I think that you can achieve you know, things that you hadn't imagined were possible before. Mm-hmm. And how important do you believe feedback is in the process of ultra learning? I know I asked you vaguely about this, but I specifically want to ask, like, if you're talking to a professional or someone who knows more about the topic, just on a more personal level, how important do you believe it is to not let your pride or ego get in the way and to realize that this is part of the process and that and to embrace feedback overall? So feedback is super important. Um, I even have a whole principle devoted to feedback. The interesting thing about the research on feedback is that there are also places where feedback can backfire. So we even just talked about it right there that your emotional reaction to feedback can have a huge influence on whether it's a positive thing. So it's clear that it's not just the case that whether feedback is important is about the information it contains, but critically what you do with that information. And so I think feedback is very important. I think I would stress as well that there's lots of places that you can get feedback. And so sometimes, again, talking about procrastination or, or excuses, that sometimes people will say, well, I don't have a coach or I don't have someone who's giving me you know, detailed expert feedback, therefore I can't get better at this skill. And the truth is, is that you can get better at a lot of skills even absent this kind of feedback. And so I think the important thing is that you want to get feedback, you want to seek it, and you want to have this sort of positive attitude towards it where you're using it constructively. But at the same time, I want to stress that even absent some of the best kinds of feedback where you have, you know, some expert teacher who's carefully correcting your work, you can still get better at a lot of skills. And so don't use the lack of those opportunities as the, you know, driving reason why you're not going to approach learning some subject. Definitely. And so overall, this whole show is about living your most authentic life. And for me, I very much admire the fact that you're very curious to learning so much. And I think curiosity is so important in life in general, whatever it has to do with. And if some people don't want to learn, that's okay. But I wanted to ask you what living your most authentic life means to you, because from my perspective, it seems that you're very curious about a lot of things. But overall, what does it mean to you to live your most authentic life? I think for me, I think, and I think for, I would say for a lot of people, what it means to live an authentic life is to live in a way that your kind of higher values, the things that you really care about deep down are the things motivating your existence and your projects and things you're working on. And I think for so many of us, we feel kind of dragged down by things that we have to do in life. You know, our work is too stressful. Maybe we're having not the best time in our relationships or you know our health is causing us issues and we have these external factors that are putting constraints on us and so for me i think that often what we're really trying to reach for are things like learning goals that we we want to find out new things about the world we want to explore we want to uh, be good at things and, and feel confident about it. And so I think sometimes for me, what it means to live an authentic life is to kind of try to cultivate the space that you can be yourself and, and really do the things that you care about. And that's not always an easy thing to do, but I think it's something that you slowly build over time. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the show. And I wanted to ask you lastly, where can listeners follow you online and where they can purchase your book and what else is coming up next for you? 
Thanks. Yeah. So anyone who is interested in uh, checking out me can go to scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And there, if you join my weekly newsletter where I give an article each week, uh, I also have a free chapter of um, Ultra Learning, the book that is published. And it's also available Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. Um, It also has an audible version, which is narrated by me. And yeah, I've got, I always have new projects that are coming out. So you feel free to check out my website and I'll be talking about what I'm, you know, trying to tackle next. Great. Well, thank you. I can definitely admit that I'm very curious to learn a new language now. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Of course. I hope you all enjoyed that episode with Scott Young. As you can tell, he's so knowledgeable and very experienced on this topic, and he shared a lot of information in this interview. But if you'd like to learn more, make sure to check out his book, Ultra Learning, Mastering Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career, which I will link in the description of this episode. I think there were many relatable takeaways from this episode, specifically the idea that we can be afraid of learning sometimes, learning something new, or trying something new because we don't want to fail, or we think we're not talented enough, or maybe we're not that great at it, or we have to be a genius to be good at this. And we get frustrated, and so many of us just stop. And we think that there are ways to get around it, or we have to be a pro in one month, or a certain time limit. When in reality, we just have to be patient with ourselves and understand that learning takes time. Even people we may look up to who we think are really smart, amazing at specific skills, those people had to also go through the struggles of learning, the failures, the hard days of not remembering how to do something. It's okay to be frustrated. It's a part of learning. And even Scott explains that if you want to quickly get to being a pro or an expert at something, that's not possible. You have to put in the work. You have to put in the hours. You're going to get frustrated with yourself and that's okay. And when you want to get good, when you're really passionate about something and you take it seriously, you're going to attract mentors. He gives many great principles. So he talks about the principles of ultra learning. I just like how he discussed those because for me at least and for many people in the normal education system, we're just so focused on studying and getting through it. And you know, many of us are passionate about certain classes and certain topics. But for example, I'm not a huge science person. I always loved math. Like I was really good at math and I, and I really enjoyed it. But science, I was just not good at. I thought it was interesting, but I was just never good at it. It never clicked. And so I just wanted to study and get through it. Chemistry, for example, I just never really cared for it. So I would study up until the night of, take the test and forget everything. So if you asked me after to retrieve that information for you and to let you know, I would not remember anything. Those are just two examples of the principles of ultra learning, transfer and retrieval. And he goes into detail on many other ones, but it's so important to practice that. So another example is I went to French American school growing up. Many of my classes were in French and I learned French from kindergarten to seventh grade. And then I switched schools, but it's so sad because I can't, I can understand French pretty well. And if I practice and read, I will remember it. But right now, like I can't just speak it naturally fluently, which I was able to at one point. And that's because I haven't been practicing it. I haven't been actually applying it to my life. I don't have that many friends who speak French or the friends from school. I don't really talk to as much in person. 
I just don't have anyone to practice it with. And so I know we talked about Duolingo in the episode and how he recommends a different app, but it's funny because I've actually been using Duolingo. I'm trying to learn Spanish. I'm trying to practice my French as well and hopefully improve on that skill because it's been a while. But anyway, this whole episode, (laughs) I feel like I'm kind of going on a tangent, but I'm just really passionate about this topic because there's so much to learn. And I think one reason I was really fascinated with Scott was because he challenged himself in that way. He really challenged himself to learn. And obviously, you don't have to learn the four-year program in one year like he did. That's incredible. But I'm not saying everyone has to do that. Like There are different ways to learn and different time constraints we all have. And like we said, not everyone has all the hours in a day to do that. So I'm just doing like 10 minutes each day for each language and hopefully I can practice it and apply it in real life. I wouldn't consider that necessarily ultra learning, but I'm still trying to learn a new skill and I think that's more realistic for most people. So I think what he did is incredible and so cool, but he even explains like not all of us have time to go to a five-hour graphic design class or like people have work and school and different responsibilities. So it's different for everyone. You just need that 10 minutes, that 30 minutes, that hour. We all have some amount of time and we're not over here like forcing people to learn. I'm not saying, oh, you have the time, go learn something. I think it's great to do that, but this is on you. If you want to watch Netflix on your spare time, please feel free to. Like we all need to relax and let our minds heal and just not focus on anything. I totally get that. But if you've been wanting to learn something new, if you've been wanting to develop a new skill and you just feel like, you don't have the time or the money or whatever it is, there is always a way, there's always time. Work with what you have. If you don't have money to spend on a class, try an app. There are so many apps out there. If you don't have three hours, try one hour. If you don't have one hour, try 30 minutes, 15 minutes. There's so much you can do. And like he said, there are obviously certain things like coding or things that you can't just like practice in five, 10 minutes because it takes so much time, but work with what you have and it obviously depends on your situation. This comes with not being frustrated and not being so hard on yourself, but don't let feedback keep you from learning. Be curious, you're going to mess up. You may have mentors, coaches, people who tell you, you did wrong, that wasn't the right way to do it, or you could do better. You may have people who are hard on you or even just yourself when you make a mistake, but that's part of the process. Be curious, be open to learning. You're going to make those mistakes and it's okay. If you never want to make a mistake, then you're never going to learn. Don't compare yourself to where experts are at right now. They had to go through so much to get to where they are. Whatever it is, start where you can. Even if it's something like, I want to start an Instagram for my side hustle, for my clothing line that I'm doing on the side. That's just an example. You may not know how to use social media. You may not know how to make the best clothes, but you have to start somewhere. And trust me, even for myself, like with my podcast, I am in no way an expert. I'm very clear on that. (laughs) But I have learned so many skills on how to use these tools, these programs, how to market. In just one year, I've gone through trial and error. I've taken classes. I've taken free classes. I've I've paid for a few workshops. I've made mistakes. I've posted things that I look back on and I'm like, how, why did I design that like that? <laughs> and it's fine. You live and you learn. Don't go comparing yourself to someone else. Challenge yourself to be better than who you were yesterday. Don't compare yourself to other people, but only to yourself and keep trying to better yourself. If you have grown since yesterday, that's all that matters. 
So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to follow Scott on Instagram, you can at Scott H. Young. You can also find more information on his book and what he does in the description of this episode. This is episode 48, so we're getting to episode 50, which will be the one-year anniversary of the show, and it will also be landing on Halloween, so that's kind of fun. I'm really excited about that, so if you've been listening, thank you so much. If you've messaged me like with suggestions or just feedback, like I always appreciate that, and you can also leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, which means the world and if you'd like to follow me on instagram you can at tara.mont or the instagram for the podcast at trust and thrive so thank you all for listening i appreciate you so much i am really looking forward to the new year i'm feeling so excited and motivated and honestly i was feeling very anxious not even just for the one year anniversary but just for the new year coming up because it's going to be 2020 a new decade and i'm turning 25 in january so it's my quarter of a century birthday and it just feels like a lot is happening um like a huge milestone overall and a new chapter so i'm just so excited for that so with that said i hope you have an amazing week full of a lot of self-reflection and i will catch you all next thrive thursday